0: This is Focal Point, the podcast where we discuss the artists, themes, and processes that define and sometimes disrupt the world of contemporary photography. I'm Karen Irvine, Chief Curator and Deputy Director, here with guest Abelardo Morell. Abe is well known for creating images made inside camera obscuras that capture both interior and exterior views in large format photographs, as well as innovative and alluring still lifes made with everyday materials. Today, we will discuss a work he has chosen from the MOCP's permanent collection of over 16,000 objects, as well as his own work and practice. Good morning, Abe.
1: Hi, Karen. Nice <laughs> to be here. Thanks for
0: being here. Um, so in this podcast, we always start by asking our guests to pick a favorite image from our collection, and you... Which was
1: hard because, <laughs> my God, it's... You know, you, you almost you don't want to settle on one, but, you know, if you have to, you do.
0: You have to, you do. Um, you chose Bernice Abbott's multiple flash photograph from her science pictures portfolio that was made in 1958. Let's start by having you just describe the image to our listeners.
1: It's a strobe picture, a very powerful flash capturing intervals of, of time, and it's a ball bouncing uh, and the parabolas that it describes as it you know uh, winds down uh, so it's it's very rigorous scientific looking uh, exposure of of the physics of motion
0: and why is this image important to you? why does it resonate with you
1: well because I, I have very many interests uh. Like you know, most artists—it's not just one thing—but one of the things that i um I a while ago began to think about was just the physics of light and the physics of motion, and you know, the, the, the nerdy part of me—you know—how to describe objects in certain ways. Bernice Abbott—I mean, I chose this picture because it's not a typical picture from her at all. Mm-hmm. If you think about Bernice Abbott, you think about these. One of those pictures of New York and buildings and night pictures of the city, and you know, a kind of a multiple layered pictures of living in in a metropolis. Uh, And she was really good at that. Uh, I mean, maybe one of the best. But the fact that she chose this uh, study of motion uh, and gravity and Um, just how a ball bounces. It makes me think that she was more, she had more going on than she let out to believe, you know, so.
0: Great, and in your own work there has been a lot of scientific research involved, particularly the physics of optics. But uh, in a speech that I heard you give last night, you admitted that you had failed physics in college. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so, were you? Is science a big part of your practice? Is that a long-standing interest for you? Uh,
1: yeah, pseudoscience, maybe. Um, I, I didn't have the chops to to be an engineer. Or, I, I thought I wanted to be an engineer, but in, clearly, flunking physics did not help. <laughs> um, but behind a lot of what I do, there's a kind of an interest uh, of. The way physics narrates the world and uh, events that are purely physical, but take on a very beautiful arc. uh, And that's the part I'm interested
0: in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Abe, can you tell us when your interest in photography started? I know you moved to the U.S. from Cuba when you were 13. Mm -hmm. Were you interested in photography as a kid before you came here, or did that develop later?
1: Not... I want to say no, but um, when we moved from uh, Cuba to New York City, eventually, in 1962, I bought a brownie from a drugstore in the corner of where we lived. And I I happened to be a delivery boy for the uh, drugstore. And there was that camera, you know, being sold, and I saved enough to buy it. so something drew me to photography. and In fact, I don't have hundreds of them, but I have enough pictures from that time uh, where I documented family life in New York. Um, they're very interesting pictures of me now because clearly it's, it's a big upset, you know, when you leave what you know and it's warm and bright and suddenly I was in a basement in New York City, cold and dark and... So it was a dramatic you know, uh, Kafkaesque moment for me. We were still happy to be out of a, a regime that wanted to kill us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But somehow, the, I think the, the, getting the camera was a way for me to sort of document some of the, the activities and, and maybe some of my fears and you know, ambivalences about what was happening. So they're they're interesting pictures. I mean, I took pictures of my father at work and the corner store. I went to Central Park a lot with my brownie, which is, by the way, a square format. And 1962. So guess what? Who was hanging around Central Park around that time? Dion Arbus.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and sometimes I go. Maybe I should go throw a negative to see if Arbus is somewhere in the shot. <laughs> But she was indeed, you know, photographing people, and uh, I didn't know that at the time. But so that made it doubly interesting. But yeah, photography was a way I think for me to document a certain angst and joy of being in an amazing city. And,
0: mm-hmm. uh, did you ever meet Deanne Arbus? No, I never did.
1: Yeah. Although I'm sure I passed her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I was photographing. <clears throat> uh, in the park, in the middle of the park, where she photographed him. Wow. Yeah. So, when I first saw her work, which is the show that was uh, put up by MoMA in 1971, just after she killed herself. So, that was my first uh, look at, at the work, and it was shocking, shockingly strange and beautiful and Odd and just, uh, it shook me. Uh, yeah, it still sure, does.
0: Sure. Oh, I would love to see some of your mm-hmm. pictures from that time. I know you ended up at Yale uh, for an MFA, but uh, in undergrad, did you pursue photography then as well?
1: Yeah. So I, we already know that I'm not, no scientist. <laughs> um, then I, I, my junior year in 1969 at Bowdoin. I took a photography course with a wonderful wonderful teacher named john mckee and he taught photography in very interesting ways it wasn't f-stops and so much as you know a haiku uh, from basho could relate to a certain kind of image and you know it was beautifully wedded to all kinds of ideas so uh, i took that course and i knew right away it was the first few pictures it was so clear that I had found my bride. Uh-huh. Uh, no question. And uh, I remember calling my parents and they cried. <laughs> they did. They was like, what about your engineering? Uh, what about money? Uh-huh. Um, so, I, so I kept making pictures uh, in one way or another, making money as a doorman or cleaning buildings, uh, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 1969, I... I began to make pictures, and to this day I'm still doing it.
0: So then you ended up at Yale for your MFA and graduated in 1981. What was Yale like at that time?
1: It was a little bit uh, stuck, a little bit in a certain kind of, you know, uh, photographic style. I mean, in '81, in '79, you know, Winogrand and um, Robert Frank and Lee Friedlander. that street photography was king. Uh, which was fine with me because I really, I did like street photography very much and I admired all those people. But, but it was a little bit too much soul, you know, so I felt like I, uh, I couldn't really, I could have, but I didn't want to try different ways of looking at the world. And I did like photographing in the streets, mm-hmm. the poetry of, I mean, the pers- first person I looked at when I started photography was Carly bresson mm-hmm. So, you know, when you start with that, you go, well, this magic in the streets. Right, sure. Um, and so I I became a street photographer, and uh, even at, after graduating in 81. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Did you work initially as a teacher, or did you have another source of income right after grad school?
1: Uh, after grad school, I got a job uh, for a year teaching at Bowdoin College where my professor had taken a sabbatical, so I applied and taught for a year. And then after that, I got a job teaching photography at the Massachusetts College of Art in Boston in 1983, okay. which I, I stayed at f- until I retired in 2010.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So being an educator is a huge part of your life. Oh, huge. Oh, <laughs> no, no,
1: no. It's not, in fact, when I, when I see teachers who are like, oh, uh, It's just the checkbook, the check. Mm -hmm. It just offends me a a lot. I mean, I learned so much from my students. Mm -hmm. That energy and the feeling of feeling young again. And No, it's it's invaluable. Mm
0: -hmm. And it must be, at the same time, difficult to maintain such an active practice. I know you're a very hard worker, and you've been very prolific throughout your career. Did you think the teaching kind of actually supported the amount of output that you had and the energy to make work? It, it's or tough was it to difficult? balance, no, yeah. no
1: question about it. I mean, I was a very dedicated teacher, and so I put my time in, and there was a lot of demand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in, 80, well, in 86, uh, Lisa, my wife, and I had Brady, a uh, young boy, and, and I was still trying to be a street photographer during that time. And clearly, with the baby at home, I'm not going to go to the streets. I'm going to be at home. Uh, And that was kind of a a key moment for me because um, I switched cameras. I I decided to get a view camera instead of something, a slow way of making pictures of things nearby uh, because of Brady and objects and childhood. And that really turned me around. Um, I mean, photographing his baby you know his milk bottle <laughs> I felt absurd like what? what that's not you Abe but it was really fun to experiment looking deeply and closely at life you know that my new life as a father and that really was very helpful mm-hmm. because then possibilities of it didn't have to be Central Park anymore it had to it could be my living room right uh, and that was fun
0: right that's a huge shift were people surprised did you
1: a little bit yeah well i am sure that people at Yale would have said you're making baby pictures now <laughs> uh, which I wasn't, but you know no, I was surprised because it was uh but I never knew what being a father was had not known that, and uh, with it comes an uh, amazing emotion you know of raising somebody from nothing to something uh. Mm-hmm. So, I was feeling a, lo- I was feeling a lot at uh, the time, but I, I'm not particularly an emotional person, but i was definitely having feelings about this new creation in our life, and, and I wanted photography to go there mm-hmm. in a way that I hadn't done before, and it was very interesting because it, there were more meditations on this new life and long exposures, the feeling of light coming in, mm-hmm. that was huge. You know, just early light in his room, and I, I just became more sensitive to mm-hmm. uh, those worlds.
0: No, for sure, those works are so so beautiful and quiet and meditative feeling, and yeah, just lovely. So, but throughout your whole career, you've also had a very lively practice of still lifes that oh, yeah. seem to extend from that yeah. that mid '80s moment. Can you talk about those pictures and also? Um, your interest in painting and design and form and Mm -hmm. how that plays into what you do with everyday objects like children's blocks and flowers Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. books
1: yeah well i think the the experience i had um, the first couple years with brady uh being a a toddler and being on the ground a lot and, and i don't know about you or people who have children but you know our living room was a war zone of junk and toys and I mean it was sort of a mess but I was surrounded with objects and um, that it felt interesting to try to make pictures of of that landscape Uh, so in some ways it began uh, it it made me start thinking about still lives Uh, these objects can be still lives or or events like water dripping into a bucket or something just moments like that that felt like, you know, this can be photographable and, um, and, and in some kind of form and shape um, I mean, you cannot do anything with that form but it can also be boring, so I try to make something like a step up from the usual uh, I mean, I, I do love um, 17th, 17th century Dutch uh, paintings a lot they're maybe some of the best still lives ever made because they're mm. so weird and beautiful. And where you think you know everything. There's a, a bug, you know, <laughs> in one of the leaves. It's like Jesus, these people really want reality. <laughs> you know, <laughs> to a fault. Um, so I began to think about making yeah, sort of still life creations that uh, continues to to now. Um, and sometimes with my students, I would. When they were stuck and anything like they, they could do anything my advice was to get a table you know find a table and put a couple of objects on it it doesn't matter what and just look at it and ideas will come out because the idea of a ground and then some substance on it. it immediately begins you know to make you think about relationships and that's bigger than this, or if you look at it from the side, there's a confusion about the perspective. Anyway, interesting events happen when you just, you know, contain yourself to a small event like that. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that. Um, there's a, a really wonderful poem by Wallace Stevens about, it's called The Anecdote of a Jar. And... Uh, I don't know, paraphrase it, but it's something like I placed the jar in Tennessee and then he goes, and immediately all kinds of relationships began to happen the way that it fit on the ground and it changed the landscape and just by doing that uh, it's not the same world anymore, and mm-hmm. I just love that point because it is very photographic once you do make a change on a Surface somewhere. It makes you think that uh, it's not the same,
0: right? You become conscious of the view. Yes, and I mean, speaking of transforming worlds, your camera obscura work does that so well. Mm-hmm. Um, brings the inside, the outside in, and um, transforms the space within. If we're talking about um, pictures that you've made in rooms, mm-hmm. and so the story goes that you started that by um, creating a camera obscura for your students at first. Oh, yes, yes. But for our listeners, could you describe just briefly how a camera obscura works and Mm -hmm. then also what you think the feeling of being inside of one is? Mm.
1: Well, as you said, I I began to think about camera obscura, the phenomenon, when I was teaching because I wanted to show students something about the, the very primitive beginnings of photography. But essentially, a camera obscura is a a room of any size. Uh, You make it dark by covering all the windows and openings, uh, so it's black inside, and then you make a small, like a dime-sized hole on the black plastic covering it, and through that hole on the opposite wall, an upside-down image of the outside world comes in. It's not super sharp but pretty good. You can see people walking, you can see the sub, you know, the trolley coming by. It's a, a remarkable phenomenon, and if you've never seen it, it's it feels like, where have I been? <laughs> um, to think that that phenomenon really came with the world. I mean, day one, right? Adam and Eve could have seen a camera obscure because it's, it's not a, an invention, it's a given, it's a physical event. I am certain that 40,000 years ago, some person looked at a camera obscure image of a bison projected on the wall. This, mm-hmm. It's no question. It, the chances are very high. Mm-hmm. Um, so to think that it's, it's that old uh and with us all the time made me think okay maybe i should uh explore this idea with students and show them the the prehistory of what photography is and also wow them a little bit and i did even the hippest student in my classes would say something like oh my god (laughs) <laughs> you know, like oh, so I knew I had something. I I, um, I introduced them to something about how photography did work. Eventually,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of surprising how few people really have experienced being inside of a camera obscura, considering how amazing it is and how fundamental.
1: Yes, by accident, sometimes people see them.
0: Right, right right and even you know people study art history and even learn about them without actually having been in a chamber you know and seeing correct, the, the projection so it I, is something very I special got a letter
1: a long time ago after a show of mine i got a letter from an old older man who talks about being a young soldier going to the battle of the bulge in europe in with the snow fields and everything and he was in a railroad cart that has slats um, in it and he remembers all the feelings about i'm gonna die soon and then images will come in and uh, be projected on the side of the train of the field Mm -hmm. i mean it was a very touching letter wow yeah Yeah.
0: um so you've made the camera obscura images all over the world in all different locations Mm -hmm. um i'm always curious about how you source the locations and for example our the picture we have up right now of the pantheon in rome yeah. is of a hotel room and you're very specific in how you title it it's you know the hotel name with room number 111 <laughs> uh, and the furniture that is captured in the room seems to kind of fit perfectly within the composition yeah. of the yeah, projected i was, l- image. I was lucky yeah. <laughs> you were lucky so but i mean are you you know, running through the entire hotel looking for the right room and set up, or how much legwork is Often there behind? Often that's
1: the case. I mean, we see the Pantheon, and go, okay, that hotel looks at it. So once I know, you know, where the Pantheon is, and then I find some place facing it, in this case, a, a hotel that my Italian friend would uh, talk to the manager and, and explain as best as he could, you know, <laughs> what we're looking for. It's a, It's a mystery sometimes. Uh, so if I find the right room and it's rentable, we'll rent it for a day or two just uh, in case. Um, you know, the weather turns bad or something. So if I'm lucky, I'll find the right place. But it, oftentimes it's very difficult to locate where where I want to make a picture from. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: And then inside the space, did you do you move things around to make them... I think maybe
1: the, the bed that was there I think I took the, uh, the sh- I think the covers that cover the side just so the image could fall and uh, just that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and but that picture was when I I, I used film so again um, uh, the, my technology has changed dramatically the, with film, Black and white film. The exposures were eight hours long. Oh my gosh! Uh, with color, five. So we, you know, started the exposure and then went out and had some gelato and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and do some uh, sightseeing. Um, so yeah, I I have to look for the place.
0: Yeah, yeah, and then so then you added. Was it the diopter lens that shortened yeah. the exposure times? Then the addition uh, of that, or? two things. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, I didn't. I wasn't satisfied with the, the total sharpness of my pictures because mm-hmm. basically it's just a, a primitive thing, like a hole, right. no glass. I started investigating how I could get lenses ground uh, so that they would have a focal length, a focus, uh, which I did. So in my uh, bag, I have. A dozen lenses that will focus from six feet to twenty-five feet. Oh, interesting. And this way, I can get a much sharper image, uh, brighter because the lens is quite big, um, and it uh, it just the reality uh, coming in was a lot, you know, more intense with with that method. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm still using those.
0: Mm-hmm. And then the images flipped to appear right side up by a mirror.
1: Right. I looked into that also. Um, and this physics guy I knew said, well, if you use a very large uh, 90 degree prism, mm-hmm. prism in front of the lens, they will do that. So I kept changing technology and changing ways to do things just because I'm a restless kind of guy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then you started doing portable camera obscuras, right, with a tent.
1: Oh, but before tending. that, I switched from film ah. um, uh, to digital. So in 2010, I, 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 I got a digital camera, a face one, which uh, make, they make the, the best digital cameras available. And the exposures from six, seven hours came down to two or three minutes. Wow. <clears throat> Which is not because I want to save time, but also what's interesting about that is that smaller events, uh, like somebody waiting for the bus or something, would show up right. on the picture. Right. Before, because the exposures were so long, the sky was all blank, the streets were all blank, because it couldn't really stop anything. Mm-hmm. Now I'm getting activity, uh, yeah, life, right. inside. Cool. Yeah, which is, I liked that. Also, if there's a cloud coming in, it's I get it, you know? Uh, so the nuances of the imagery has really changed because of that shorter exposure.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the, the tent setup.
1: Right, so in, again, 2009 or 10, I got a commission to photograph in uh, Big Bend National Park in Texas. Uh, I'd never been to a desert before, and I thought, "Oh, this could be boring." Um, in fact, I love deserts now. I mean, I finally I get it. It's when you think there's nothing, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been converted. But anyway, I told the the people who proposed the idea that I need rooms, you know, somewhere, and. And the idea of maybe having a portable setup uh, came up. And I began to to study ways to make a a tent uh, be outfitted with a periscope on the top so that an image of the hills can be projected on the ground itself. Then with my camera inside, take a picture of that, the combination of ground and image became again another really interesting way to make pictures and I don't know why people haven't done this before uh, or even camera obscura pictures in rooms had never really been done before or Mm -hmm. shown I mean pinhole cameras and all that yes but uh, so in some ways I'm just taking advantage of what my god this is a (laughs) no-brainer right who you know this is an obvious thing to photograph anyway I take advantage of things that people just take for granted Um, so That took me to national parks and very interesting way to make pictures Um, and that the tent uh, camera has developed over the years where I'm doing something. So now I'm using a smaller tent um, with a better periscope and better ways to control the image and it's smaller and lighter that I can take anywhere uh, and the images are by far the best because mm-hmm. of this new technology mm-hmm. I, I did I did work in the south of France recently which uh, uh, proved to me that whatever uh, study we made of the, the new tent really worked
0: right tell me a little bit about that work you sent it to me I, I loved it it's Influenced by Van Gogh, who you're oh yeah, an admirer of. Yes, and I am. It's so lovely how the ground that you're capturing mimics some of the paint strokes and starry night effects. Unbelievably, so yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, well, I've always been a fan of Van Gogh, uh, mostly because I, I don't I don't have the romantic notion that oh, crazy people just do amazing things. And he wasn't all that crazy. I mean, he he had bouts of, you know. Awful periods, but he worked damn hard. He wanted to make, he loved nature, and he didn't want to make crazy pictures of nature, He just wanted to make his pictures of nature. Um, so I've always been admired him, and and the fact that there were there's a landscape in the south of France in Arles and Saint Rémy where he painted for a couple of years uh, made me think, oh, I can maybe bring my tent there, and naively thinking that I could. Re, you know remake van gogh's and of course that's first dumb <laughs> uh, and second impossible but when i got there and basically on the footsteps of van gogh it was amazing because here is a 21st century artist looking at something that was helpful to an artist a long time ago in the 1880s and um, i could have my chance at it too you know, which is holding hands in some ways with the past, but uh, what ended up happening was there was some inklings of what Van Gogh could have painted, you know, with stones becoming like stars, Uh, but the result is uh, they're reminiscent of a lot of great French made 19th century painters, Mm -hmm. landscape painters. They're... I mean, this Corot, Corbet, Mie. I mean, this, and I love that period a lot. That's uh, true. But my, what, I think what's fascinating is that my device, taking an image of the landscape projected on the very ground, converts that image into something reminiscent of Impressionism or what those painters were painting. I'm, and I'm not, you know, with, um, Photoshop right oh, let's make that paint. No, it's automatic. Right, right. Uh, which is fascinating.
0: Absolutely. You know? It's the you know the time of day that you're shooting. It really yes. enhances the palette and makes yeah. it reminiscent of all those painters. And then the texture of the ground does make us think of pointillism and brushstrokes. Yes, yeah,
1: and, and strokes uh, of, of paint. So it feels like I'm on to something. And, uh, uh, and the new work, I think, is the most exciting for me because it's, first of all, the images are even more Vivid. Um, i love the the meeting between early photography in france and and painting really remarkable gustave Le Gray, one of my favorite paint uh, photographers of the period was hanging around when, when monet was making pictures in you know mm-hmm. fontainebleau so it's an interesting period and in, in that i'm beginning to study more I, I, in some ways, by doing a lot of work, I've become a kind of an academic—not <laughs> really, but so my uh, studio is full of books now. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm <laughs> more than I can house, but I spend hours just looking at images. Oh, see, there's a photograph of that thing that Monet. Oh, so it's semi-academic, but for to help me just understand uh, that period and what made people do things.
0: Absolutely. And I love that the ground reinforces the sense of continuity and mm. accessibility that that is really where, like you mentioned footsteps before yes. these artists had stood and where we can all still stand yes. and see similar views and appreciate similar vistas. So it's well really put lovely. no,
1: exactly. That, I mean, you can you know, when I was there making a picture, like, you know, all these artists walked there. And they may have stopped or not, but um, and it's not—it's almost not that radical because, but really radical because a ground can yield so many things. It, it's very hopeful because it's not oh, one picture. You know, forget it. Uh, this what time of the day? If the ground is stone or mud or shit, <laughs> um, it uh, it changes things. It does feel like uh, there's a continuity going on like you said mm-hmm. uh, and it feels good to be part of that journey you know absolutely uh, and can't can't wait to go back
0: <laughs> where where will that journey take you do you think i wanted to ask you where do you see yourself in 5 years or what
1: i'm 74 now so be <laughs> careful
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> maybe 10 minutes
0: <laughs> in 10 minutes <laughs> hey, where do you see yourself <laughs> Maybe having lunch, I think. <laughs> um,
1: well, when I was photographing in the south of France, uh, I hurt my back, so we, I had to come back a week early. Oh. Uh, so I didn't get to a place called Auvers. Uh, it's a town north of Paris where Van Gogh ended. You know, his last paintings were made there. And he made a ton, too. And that's, that's where he killed himself. So that's a place I need to go back and finish this project. And, and it's, it's not really after Van Gogh, it's sort of in the footsteps of Van Gogh, so it's not I'm making Van Gogh paintings, but the whole feeling of 19th century French painting sort of comes with it. Then from there I'm going to go to Giverny where Monet painted, and I've done some work there with a tent, yeah. but now that I have a super tent, <laughs> uh, I've been given permission to photograph in the garden. Oh, great. Uh, some more, and I, so I really can't wait to see that, um, and then I'm, I got a residency in a place called Itati, it's a, uh, Harvard uh, University uh, owns this amazing villa in Florence. Oh,
0: nice.
1: Uh, the, the art historian Berenson uh, oh, yeah. sort of began it, Ah. And and if you want to write about the Renaissance, study it, uh, you go there. But I've been given a residency for two months. Great. I know. Great. So I'm going to try to find museums that have optical devices Uh to kind of think about new ways to invent some other apparatus that will let me photograph the landscape in different ways.
0: Oh, cool! Yeah, no, I that's hope. that's exciting! Yeah. Yeah, and and
1: you know, two months in Florence. Doesn't doesn't uh, Doesn't hurt, <laughs> and they feed you too. Oh well, there yeah. you go. <laughs> can I come?
0: <laughs> that sounds lovely. Yeah. Cool. And then to wrap up, I wanted to ask you, what is the most important thing for you in terms of your work that a viewer can take away?
1: Hmm. I, I know there are different mental states in the making of art so you know you could be divorced from life but i think there's i think about who's looking at it and i want uh, in some ways to charm people and maybe give them a sense of how surprising life is you know you think well this is life is one way well not not from here, and the best academics, and the best poets, and the best writers have always made that happen. Oh, I think, you know something? You think this is what you know? Well, check this version, you know, so it's important for me to to give a kind of a a hopeful sense, you know, of what things are. Uh, And, you know, and that's why I taught for so long, I love young students turn around and go, oh, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you can sort of see the fire beginning and, and, and the best of them, they just keep at it. So uh, I think that's still true for me. So, thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Focal Point. Focal Point is presented by the Museum of Contemporary Photography at Columbia College Chicago in partnership with WCRX Radio and Professor Matt Cunningham. Music is by Xavi. To see the images we discussed today, please visit mocp.org backslash You can also follow the Museum of Contemporary Photography on Facebook and Instagram at mocpshi, that's M-O-C-P-C-H-I, and on Twitter at mocp underscore Chicago. If you enjoyed our show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Focal Point anywhere you get your podcasts.